And our text for today is what is commonly referred to as the prologue of John's first letter. If you remember the first four verses of the book of 1 John, you can go ahead and turn there. You'll remember that they are full of doctrinal richness, but they're also difficult to follow. The original grammar is so hard for the English to capture in a single sense. And so I hope that we'll walk away with a better understanding of it after we study it together. Let's begin by reading these verses together. So 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. This is what the Apostle John wrote to the churches. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. And before we dive in, let's make just a few observations from what we just read of this text. Simple observations, hopefully. First of all, this prologue is not very much like other openings to New Testament letters at all. It's very much different. If you're accustomed to reading Paul's letters or Peter's letters or any other letters in the New Testament, this is very different. When Paul or others wrote letters, they used the typical Greco-Roman introduction to a letter. So all of Paul's letters, when you read them, you're reading what people usually wrote when they wrote a letter to someone important in the Greco-Roman Empire. In formal letters of that day, there was an initial identification of the author, and then following that, there was often a formal salutation to those who were the recipients of the letter. And then often there was a pleasant greeting as well. So, for example, we read something like this in a New Testament letter. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. That's the identification of who's writing the letter. To those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. That is the formal salutation to his readers. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. That's an expression of warm greeting. That's Jude verses 1 and 2. It's the same in 1 Peter, for example. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. He's identifying himself. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. That's who he's writing to. And then, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. That's his warm greeting to them. And I could walk through all of Paul's letters and show you that it's exactly the same. But this letter from John is different. The opening to this letter does not clearly identify the author. The opening to this letter does not even clearly identify the recipients of the letter. It doesn't issue a warm greeting like the others do. Rather, this opening is very theological. It's very technical. 
The opening to this letter uses lofty and elevated language to communicate the point of writing. And the opening to this letter leaves us needing to do a lot of work, actually, to figure out who's writing it and who he's writing it to. So John's opening to this letter is unique in that it is very much different from the openings of other New Testament letters. That's just an observation that we should make. Secondly, we should observe that this prologue is written from the perspective of an authorial team. It's written from the perspective of an authorial team. I think I have places in your outline in the notes to write these things in. There clearly is a group of persons who are writing this. And it's not John only. And we know this because he consistently uses, we've got to do grammar here, guys. He consistently uses the plural first-person pronouns and not the singular ones. The singular first-person pronouns are I, me, my, whereas plural first-person pronouns are we, our. Notice all the we words in this prologue. I'll read it again. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it. And then he says that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. I hope you've noticed that before. But this is clearly not just John the Apostle writing. It's a group of people writing this. I remember my college rhetoric professor talking about the uses of first-person plural pronouns in writing. And he said very clearly to us, I remember it like it was yesterday, that the only time that you are allowed to use the first person pronoun we in writing when you're referring to yourself is either if you have a tapeworm or you are the Queen of England. Those are the only times you're allowed to do it. And sometimes we find in Paul's epistles, he uses what we call an epistolary we, where he kind of does that thing with a plural pronoun. But that's clearly not what John is doing here. Notice that he says with great specificity that there is a group of people, the we and the our and the us, that's one group, who have seen with their eyes and who have looked upon and touched with their hands They have seen, and it was manifest to them. And then it is written that they are proclaiming all of these things to the other group of people, the us. There's the them, the we, and then the us. And they do so so that we might participate in their fellowship and so that their joy might be complete. There's the them, and there's the us. A group of people have seen and heard, and they are writing to those of us who have not seen and heard. And they are proclaiming it to the rest of us so that we might partake in their fellowship and make their joy complete. That's the second observation that we should make of this prologue. First of all, that it's different from other New Testament openings. Secondly, it's from a plural perspective. It's from a group of people. And that really begs the question that we should ask, who is this group? Who is this group of people that is writing this letter to us? Who are those who have heard and seen and have touched? 
Whose joy is to be made complete by the rest of us receiving this message? And I want you to hold on to that question for a little bit, because we are going to answer it really in the majority of the sermon today, but in just a few minutes. I want to make one other observation, the third observation that we should make about this prologue before we jump into that, and it's this, that we should observe, thirdly, that this prologue bears a significant resemblance to another very important portion of Scripture. This prologue bears a significant resemblance to another important portion of Scripture. Now, I wish I had the time at this point to read all of chapters 14 to 16 of John's gospel. I I don't have the time for that now. I'm not going to do that. Perhaps it would be a good homework assignment for all of us. Because I guarantee you, if you sit down and read John 14, 15, 16... And then you read John's first letter, 1 John. You will see amazing and significant overlap in the things that are said in both places. And then specifically in chapter 16 of John's gospel, we find very clear similarity between what Jesus says there in John 16 and what we read in the first four verses of John's letter in the prologue. And if you don't remember what is in John 14 to 16, I'll give you a quick refresher. Remember, the events after John 12 in his gospel are what we call the Passion Week. And beginning in verse, in chapter 14, Jesus is giving what we call the upper room discourse to his apostles. He's teaching them about the Holy Spirit and about the fact that Judas is going to betray and the vine and the branches and a bunch of stuff in there that's really helpful for the apostles. And he's giving them a lot of information that will train them so that they are ready to go change the world, which is what they would do just a few months later. And what Jesus says to the twelve directly in John's gospel is echoed to the rest of the church in John's letter. As I said, if you read both, you'll see significant overlap. And this is really important for us to observe, if for no other reason than for this fact. That what John the Apostle is writing in his letter, he's not just coming up with it off the top of his head. He's not just thinking, oh, what stuff do I think I should write to a group of people? John is deliberately remembering back to what Jesus himself told him and the other apostles in the upper room. And that's what he's writing to everyone else. In other words, when we read Pastor John here in 1 John... We're actually reading the Good Shepherd, Jesus himself. We're actually reading the words and teachings of Jesus, our Lord. And what I want us to focus on specifically is this, that some of the things that we find in John 16 in particular bear a very clear similarity to what we read in John's prologue in the first four verses. In both places, we find the following themes. So this is John 16. You don't have to turn there. And 1 John 1, 1 through 4. In both places, we see that there exists a glorious and eternal relationship between the Father and the Son. The Father and the Son are one, and that's really important. In both places, secondly, we see the fact that Jesus Christ indeed was visible in the flesh. That also is very important. And then thirdly, we see in both places... The fact that fullness of joy is the practical result of Christ's work in the human heart. Christ came to do what he did in order that all of us 
might have fullness of joy. Those three things are very clear in John 16 as they also are in 1 John 1, 1 through 4. If I could put it a little more simply, both places indicate that Jesus and the Father are one. Both places indicate that Jesus came as truly human. And both places indicate that Jesus lives to give us joy. Those three things sound like a very good outline, don't they? And you would be right if you thought they did, because they are good points for an outline of what we learn in John's prologue. But I'm not going to use that as my outline this morning. I'm going to save that for next week, actually. That will be the outline for next week. Next week, we'll unpack what it is that John wrote in these first four verses that is similar to John 16. But for this week, there is something that the prologue here evidences to us that I think is so important that I found myself realizing this week that I cannot just gloss over it. We have to park and spend some time understanding something of utmost importance that we see in this prologue. You see, 1 John 1, 1-4, this prologue, is one that puts on vivid display for us the uniquely important and absolutely essential ministry of the apostles. This is a prologue that just screams to us that the apostles were very, very important and continue to be very important. This text shows us in great clarity that there would be no true church today if it were not for the ministry of the apostles. So, I want to teach all of us this morning about the ministry of the apostles. And I want to do so directly from John's prologue. I believe that in 1 John 1, 1 1-4, we find four important truths about the ministry of Jesus' apostles. And I've already hinted at a couple of them in our introduction, but we're going to see that there are four very clear principles about their ministry directly from what we see in these verses. So let me give you the principles up front. You've got them there in the bulletin outline, and then I'll explain each of them in order. First of all, the New Testament apostles ministered in harmony with each other. Secondly, the New Testament apostles received their teachings from Jesus himself. Thirdly, the New Testament apostles witnessed firsthand the glorified Christ. And then number four, the New Testament apostles possessed the only authoritative message. The only authoritative message ever was given to the New Testament apostles alone. And perhaps before I get into these points about the apostles, I should back up just a little bit and refresh us as to who the apostles actually were. We read in Matthew chapter 10, we read in Mark chapter 3, we read in Luke chapter 6, that Jesus called out these 12 apostles from the host of his disciples. So there were kind of three levels to the people who followed Jesus in his earthly ministry. You had the crowds, the people who followed him and were captivated by the miracles that he could do. And then you had a narrower group of people called the disciples. These are the people who would have called Jesus rabbi or teacher. And then... One night, Jesus spent the whole night in prayer, and the next morning he woke up. Well, he didn't wake up because he was not asleep the whole night. He was praying. He stopped praying, and he went to his disciples, those who called him rabbi, and he selected 12 of them to be his apostles. 
So we see a narrowing from the crowds to the disciples to the apostles. This is a special group of 12 men. And at every major point in the ministry of Jesus and in the life of the church, we find the apostles are front and center in the action. And this is just what Jesus intended to have happen. I've listed out in the notes there four key verses on the ministry of the apostles. First of all, there's Matthew 16, verses 17 to 19. Let me read that for us. A familiar passage. Jesus answered him. This is after Peter made his great confession about the deity of Jesus. We see in verse 17 that Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, I don't know exactly what you've been taught about this famous text and whether or not it's a lesson on the ministry of the apostles or not. And maybe one day I'll take a lot of time and and dive into that. But what we need to understand for our purposes today is that Jesus was telling Peter and the other apostles that it was upon the foundation of the ministry of the apostles that he would build his church. He was referencing Peter as a representative of the office of apostle, saying that it was upon that foundation that he would build his church. The unassailable church of Christ was to be founded upon the ministry and teaching of the apostles. What we benefit from today in the church is founded upon the ministry and teaching of those 12 apostles. Next, we have Acts Chapter 1 and verse 8, where Jesus said to the apostles, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Jesus, you'll remember, gave this charge to the disciples right before he ascended up into heaven. They were to be the ones who, as Jesus said, would give special testimony to the whole earth concerning the person and work of Christ the Lord. That's Acts 1.8. Special commission to them. 1 Corinthians 12 verse 28 we read this from Paul. God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating in various kinds of tongues. So we have the word first in this text referring to the ministry of the apostles. And it's not first in order. First, second, third, fourth, fifth, like who's finishing the race first. It's first in priority. Of first importance, Christ gave the gift of apostles. Second order of importance, the prophets, and so on. So the apostles were gifted first in that they were given the most important Gift of all. And then here's just one more text about the importance of the apostles in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 19, where Paul says, You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. 
Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Paul wrote here that the unifying body of Christ, known in this text as the household of God, so God's house, has been built, as Paul says, on the foundation of the apostles. The apostles played a fundamental role in the establishment of the church. So with that context about the nature of the ministry of these apostles, let's see what our text today in 1 John chapter 1 tells us about them. First of all, here are the four principles concerning the ministry of the apostles. First of all, we must see that the apostles ministered in harmony with one another. The apostles ministered in harmony with one another. And with this point, I'm taking us back to several minutes ago when we were finishing observing the fact that these verses were clearly written from the perspective of an authorial team, a group of people. I think we should be able to clearly see that those whom John referenced as the we were his fellow apostles. And if that's not clear to you now, I know it will be as we continue going through these points. It is really important that we see that this group of men who are the collective we of the prologue, that they are writing this in uniform agreement with each other. They're lending their support to whatever it is that John is saying. They are together declaring something as true, lending each of their voices of support to the word that John has written. Notice in our text the following lines. In the middle of verse 2, back in 1 John 1, we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life. All of them are testifying. All of them are proclaiming. Then we see in verse 3, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. And then in verse 4, we are writing these things to you. They all have the same purpose. They all have the same things that they have testified. They all have the same things that they are proclaiming in harmony and in agreement. It is clear that the apostles as a team have a unified and a harmonious message for us all. Can you imagine, maybe maybe we can't, but maybe we can. Can you imagine what it would be like to study the New Testament if the New Testament writers did not agree with each other, trying to figure out what's true and what's false. What if Paul's gospel message was in conflict with Peter's? Or what if John's doctrine of the humanity of Christ in 1 John was different from the doctrine of the humanity of Christ that Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 2? Or what if the mission of the church to one author was not the same how it was expressed by another? As readers of the New Testament, we would be very much confused as to how to determine what's true. And more than that, we would have no confidence whatsoever in what we were reading or believing. Apostolic agreement is a key indication to the veracity of the New Testament. That to us is a proof that it's true. The fact that the apostles do not change in their message to the churches is a clear indication that they indeed are speaking the true message from God. We actually take this as a test or a proof of the, of the authenticity of Scripture. 
The clear harmony that we observe in the New Testament, even even though the writers are writing to different groups of people and they're writing in their own styles and they use different grammar and they have different contexts that they're writing in, the fact that they agree and are in harmony with one another indicates to us that indeed it was the Spirit of God who was inspiring them to write in harmony as apostles. I could go over example after example of how the apostolic authors of the New Testament all agree with each other. They consistently repeat each other's message and affirm what each other have written. Peter even quotes Paul. It may be that they are defending different sides of various issues, but they are always in agreement. And this is testament to the fact that Christ has supernaturally appointed and gifted the apostles to minister in in harmony with each other. So the apostles, first of all, ministered in harmony with one another. Secondly, from this text, we see that the apostles received their teachings only from Jesus himself. They received their teachings from Jesus himself exclusively. And let me begin showing you how this is the case by quoting some of Jesus' words as recorded in that 14th, 15th, and 16th chapters of John's Gospel. This is the portion, remember I told you a few minutes ago, that has so much similarity between what was written there from the words of Jesus and what John writes in this letter. And we also must remember that it is most clearly the 12 apostles to whom Jesus was speaking in that upper room discourse. So the words I'm going to read to you are words that Jesus gave to those who wrote John's letter or taking credit for John's letter. John 14, verses 25 and 26. This is Jesus speaking. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. John 15, 15. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. John 15, 26. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. And then John 16, verses 12 and 13, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. And then John 16, 25, I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. And all of those words of Christ indicate that the apostles are direct recipients of knowledge that they were to bear witness to to the church. And we see that they were direct recipients during Christ's ministry before his death, but that they were also going to be recipients of truth after his death. Notice two texts there from John 16. He said, Jesus said, I still have many things to say to you. There's more Jesus wanted to say to his apostles. And then also the hour is coming when I will tell you plainly about the Father. It's not here now, but it's coming. That is so important for us to understand. 
The apostolic writings were not mere words of wisdom from men who had a three-year-long apprenticeship with Jesus. They weren't just collecting pithy thoughts that they came up with from the time that they spent with the Lord. The apostles were not supposed to come up with their own spin on what happened to Jesus while they were with him. And even more importantly, the apostles weren't actually supposed to take the credit for what they wrote in the New Testament. The whole point here is that when we read what the apostles testified to in their writings, we are actually reading what Jesus himself gave to them. We're reading the words of Jesus himself given to us through the apostles because that's all they had to work with were the words of Jesus, what he gave them. We're reading what Jesus gave to them both before he died and after he rose. We are reading what he revealed to them in person. We are reading what he revealed in visions. Remember, Peter had a vision in Acts 10 with Cornelius and the eating of meat. We're reading what he revealed through his spirit. When we read the scriptures, we are reading the very words of Christ as delivered by the testimony of the apostles. This is because the apostles received their teachings from Jesus himself. And in the prologue to John's letter, we find that the apostle John is clearly, clearly indicating that he and those who have lent their voice to his as the apostles, they were indeed only speaking the words that Jesus gave to them. In verse 1, he said, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, And then in verse 3, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. He's clearly saying that they're only proclaiming what they've already heard. John is saying that his letter is nothing but a proclamation of what he and his fellow apostles have already heard from Christ. And if you would let me just humor me maybe for a little bit, try to explain something a little bit technical to you right now. I think you'll find this to be even more incredible. You see, in verse 3 of our text there, 1 John 1 and verse 3, if you look there, we have written on our Bibles that word proclaim, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim to you. That word proclaim is really the main verb of the entire prologue. Again, the English, it's clunky. It's hard to really understand what's going on, but it's really clear in the original. John wrote everything here as a means to explain what it was that he and the apostles were proclaiming. And that word proclaim in the original Greek is a relatively common word in the New Testament. We find it actually all over the place, more than 45 times. But... That word for proclaim, even though it's used a lot in the New Testament, it is not used frequently by John. For some reason, John doesn't use the word a lot. He uses this word here in verse 3 of the prologue. He also uses it up there in verse 2. We testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life. So two times in the prologue, John uses that word. And then he uses it in his gospel only one time. And guess what chapter he uses it in? Chapter 16, which is that chapter that I've been saying is so closely connected to the prologue. Now, the other gospel writers use this word all over the place in in references to many other things that are being proclaimed by servants or Jesus or by people. But John reserved it only 
for this prologue and for something that Jesus said in John 16.25. Now, this might sound too technical and over your heads, but I don't think it is. I think there is a clear reason for John's word choices. And I believe it's because of what Jesus actually said in John 16.25. We actually read it a moment ago. I'll say it again. John 16.25. Jesus said, I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. And the phrase there, tell you plainly, is the same word as proclaim. In 1 John 1, 3. These are the only times that John uses that word in the New Testament. And I think he's doing it deliberately. He's connecting the coming time when Jesus would proclaim the Father clearly to the apostles. That's John 16, 25. With the fact that the apostles were now proclaiming Jesus to the church in 1 John. In other words... The apostles' proclamation of Jesus to the church is the same thing as Jesus' proclamation to the apostles of himself. Jesus proclaimed his truth to the apostles, and the apostles proclaimed that to the church. There's a direct relationship between what each is proclaiming. And so we explicitly see it to be true that the apostles were utterly consumed with testifying only what Jesus proclaimed to them. That's all they wrote. We see it very clearly to be true from John's prologue that the ministry of the New Testament apostles involved learning directly from Jesus himself. And that's all they wrote. The substance of their message was very clearly the word of Jesus alone. So the first point was that the New Testament apostles ministered in harmony with one another, Secondly, we saw that the New Testament apostles received their teachings only from Jesus. Thirdly, now, we need to understand that the New Testament apostles witnessed firsthand the glorified Christ. The apostles were firsthand witnesses of the glorified Christ. They, with their own eyes, witnessed Jesus in his resurrected glory. This point coincides with what we just learned about how they received their teachings from Jesus directly. But it is also an important and separate point because it helps us to understand one of the most important principles about recognizing who the apostles legitimately were. You see, there are people even today who would claim to be an apostle. I've spoken to some on the phone before. I used to work tech support for a for a, a web hosting company that provided websites for churches. And routinely I would get a call for support from this guy who called himself Apostle Jones. He'd identify himself as that on the phone. And I didn't correct him because I probably would have lost my job. But, oh, I wanted to. There are some who do this today out of deliberate deceit. And there are some who would do it out of ignorance. But how can we know for sure that they aren't apostles? How can we know for sure that there are not today those who have the authority to speak for Christ, new revelation to the church? Remember, if someone is an apostle, they can say, I'm speaking new revelation from Jesus, and we would have to believe it. So how do we know that there aren't apostles today? 
Well, we know this because no one today fits the qualification for New Testament apostle. Also, Paul said he was the last one. So that kind of puts a damper on it as well. But no one today fits the qualification for New Testament apostle. These three things are what Scripture indicates must be true of a person in order for them to be a true apostle. Number one, the person needed to be called out directly by Jesus for the job. There are a number of texts that make that clear. One of them is Acts 1 verse 2, where the writer talks about the apostles whom Jesus had chosen. You have to be directly chosen by Jesus himself to be an apostle. Secondly, true apostles could perform the miraculous signs of an apostle. You had to prove it by what you could do by way of miracles. 2 Corinthians 12.12 is one text that makes that clear, where we read about the signs of a true apostle that Paul could do. And then thirdly, in order to be an apostle, a person had to be an eyewitness to the resurrected and glorified Christ. This was made explicitly clear in Acts 121 when the 11 apostles, remember the 12 minus the betrayer Judas, so now we're at 11, were needing to find a replacement. Peter said that there must be one who would, and this is what he said, become with us a witness to his resurrection. The person who would be an apostle had to be a witness to the resurrection of Christ. And I make this point here because John, in his prologue, back to our text, gives obvious witness to the fact that the apostles who are writing this were indeed witnesses to the resurrected and glorified Christ. Notice his language in the first three verses of our text. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it. And then skipping to verse 3, That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. John says that he and his apostolic companions indeed have not only heard, but they have seen. It's better to see than merely to hear. And then more than that, they have not only seen, but they have touched With their hands, tangibly, the resurrected Christ. I think of Thomas putting his hands in the scar, his hands in the scars of Jesus' hands in his side. And John says here that they have touched and seen and heard what exactly? Well, if you look at the text, it's really incredible. It says they have seen that which was from the beginning. They have heard that which was from the beginning. They have touched with their hands that which was from the beginning. That's a pretty big deal to say that you have touched something that existed before creation. They are eyewitnesses to deity from before time began. They have touched deity from before time began. And how is that possible? It's only possible if indeed Jesus is God incarnate who was raised, resurrected, glorified into perfect humanity. And so we who now are the beneficiaries of the writings of the apostles need to realize that we are reading what was written by those who have heard the words of the glorified Christ in person. 
More than that, who have seen the face of the glorified Christ. And more than that, who have actually physically touched the body of our resurrected Lord. That's who we're reading from when we read the New Testament. Friends, before us, every time we open the scriptures, is the fruit of the ministry of those who had those glorious experiences. We are reading the words of those who were actual eyewitnesses of his glory. We want to be eyewitnesses of that glory, and one day we will be, but we keep ourselves anchored now because we're reading the words of those who were. So we've seen from what John wrote in his prologue that the apostles ministered in harmony with each other. We've seen from his words how it is that they were only proclaiming what they had been taught by Jesus himself. Thirdly, we just observed that they were eyewitnesses of his resurrected glory, the resurrected glory of Christ. And now fourthly, lastly, we see from this prologue that the New Testament apostles possessed the only authoritative message. They possessed the only authoritative message. And you might look at John's prologue at this point and wonder where on earth I'm getting this from. Well, I think it's from two places in these four verses that I think we see the fact that John was claiming to have an authoritative apostolic message. First, in verse 3, notice that John says that the apostolic message that they are proclaiming is one that will allow the reader to have fellowship with us. You see that in the middle of verse 3, so that you too may have fellowship with us. In other words, if you receive the message proclaimed by the apostles, then you have fellowship with them. Well, that's cool enough. But John didn't stop there. He said that the fellowship of the apostles is what kind of fellowship? He said that the fellowship of the apostles is actually fellowship with God. The end of verse 3 says, And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So, if you have fellowship with the apostles on account of receiving the message that they proclaim, then you also have fellowship with the Father and with the Son. That is some message that if you receive it, you have fellowship with your maker. That is a message that comes with power and with authority. It can give you fellowship with God himself. So the message of the New Testament apostles is clearly a message of authority. But then secondly, we see that the New Testament apostles possess the message of authority from what we read in verse 4. We read there that John was writing so that the joy of the apostles might be made complete. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. That's interesting. He's not saying so that your joy may be made complete, even though that's true as well. But it's clearly being said that it's being written so that the joy of the apostles might be made complete. It's a very interesting thought that the joy of the apostles was not complete without the church receiving and hearing and accepting their message. Hearing the words of Christ did not complete their joy. Seeing the resurrected Christ did not complete their joy. Touching the glorified body of Christ did not complete their joy. Performing miracles and planting churches all over the Roman Empire did not complete their joy. And merely penning the pages of Scripture did not complete their joy. 
It was the fact that their message would be received and would transform the lives of their readers. That is what completed their joy, finally. And at this point, I have to bring us back again to something we read in John's Gospel that Jesus said. Because once in John 15, and then three times in John 16, we read of Jesus telling the apostles about their joy, making promises about their joy. He said in John 15, 11, that he spoke to them all his words so that their joy might be full. In John 16, 20, he said that the sorrow they would feel upon his death would indeed turn into joy instead. In verse 22 of John 16, Jesus said that the joy they would have after seeing him raised from the dead would never be taken away from them. And then he said in John 16, 24, that in the future, they would pray in his name in order that their joy might be full. They would pray in order that their joy might be full. And by the way, the word for made full there in John 16, is the same word for complete in 1 John 1, 4. So exact same Greek word. So how was it to be that the apostles would have fullness of joy? How would they have a joy that remained joy and did not turn back into sorrow? What would they ask in Christ's name such that their joy would be full and complete? Well, the answer to these questions is that they would write their authoritative message to the church, so that Christ's promise about their joy being full or complete would be satisfied. They would proclaim Christ's message to the church so that they would then receive the fulfillment of his promise. Their message was of such authority and power that its proclamation and its reception by the church would effectively ensure the certainty of their joy as Jesus promised. And so we see that the message of the New Testament apostles was one of authority. This message alone could bring sinners into fellowship with the Father and the Son. And this message alone would fulfill Christ's promise to the apostles that they would have fullness of joy. So this prologue to John's first letter helps us learn these four important truths about the ministry of the New Testament apostles. First of all, the apostles ministered in harmony with each other. Secondly, the apostles received their teachings from Jesus himself. Thirdly, the apostles witnessed firsthand the glorified Christ. And number four, the apostles possessed the only authoritative message. I hope we've grown in our appreciation for the apostles, at least a little bit this morning. And what is more, I hope that we have grown in our love for the Lord who commissioned them. This is how your Lord planned and purposed and has accomplished you being here today, us being part of his church. It was of his sovereign wisdom that these men were selected and trained and sent into the world to be the foundation of the church. I'll close with this thought. I'm not sure if any of you have heard of uh, an important and ongoing debate in the church today concerning whether or not the gifts of apostleship continues today or not, the miraculous sign gifts. We call the two sides of this debate continuationism and cessationism, just fancy words that we throw onto these things. 
And this side called continuationism, which I believe is the wrong side of the debate, they are people who subscribe to the belief that the gift of apostleship continues till today, and they obviously are not correct about that. But I would say that in one very real sense, I am definitely a continuationist. Not that I think that apostles can exist today, I think that would be a very dangerous belief to have. But in the sense that the blessing of the ministry of the apostles in the first century of the church continues till today, the fact that we are very real recipients of the blessing of what the apostles did, then I am totally a continuationist. I believe that the fruit of their ministry continues on and on and on and will never end until Christ returns. And even on into the kingdom, we see that the apostles have a unique role even in the millennial reign of Christ. So in that sense, I believe in the continuing ministry of the apostles. I believe that we will never fail to feel the impact that they had upon the church. Every time you read your Bible, every time you think upon right doctrine. Every time you have true fellowship with another Christian, even one you've never met before, in all those moments, you are participating in the continued blessing of the ministry of Christ's apostles. And so we thank our Lord for these humble servants. Let's thank him together. Our Father, we thank you for your wisdom for what you have purposed to accomplish, not just in our lives today, but in the lives of those who follow us and the lives of those who preceded us in your church. We thank you for these blessed apostles and what they have done for us. We thank you that you took 12 very ordinary men who were sinful and corrupt, very diverse, very different, one of them who would be a traitor and be replaced, and then one who would be untimely born, Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. And you turned the world upside down through these men, And you have directly transformed us through these men. Because the message that they wrote down, the testimony that they proclaimed, we heard and your spirit transformed us by it and gave us new life. So we thank you for them. And we ask that we would found our ministry as they would have us to do it. That we would continue our ministry as they would have us continue it by humbly submitting ourselves to the authority of Christ and to his, to his words alone more than anything else. Help us with this truth. Change us by it so that you'll be glorified and so that Christ will be magnified in our lives. We pray all of this in his name. Amen.